This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for the privilege and the opportunity to go further and deeper in our study of your word. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to grant us heaven's blessings as we seek to understand your truth for this time. May you open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. May you draw us closer and help us to understand the power of the early rain, even its time of falling and its effects upon our lives. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to go to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. Exodus, chapter 30. And while we're turning there, You know, these are just continued points to show how important the sanctuary message is to us. If you, brothers and sisters, really and truly, if, if you know that you do not understand the sanctuary message, it, it really needs to become your first work. Because remember, you're not just going to study a doctrine, you're studying Christ. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Jesus is the way. So when you study Christ, you can see him, you should see him in the sanctuary message. You should be able to see him clear as day. But you will find that, again, it will save you from a thousand perils. Notice, the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Did you know that? There are a lot of people right now who are like Romans 9 and verse 6. You know, Romans 9, 6 says, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. Not everybody who says they're Seventh-day Adventists are truly Seventh-day Adventists. That's not because we're rebellious, per se. It's just that we don't understand the uniqueness of what makes us who we are. So for many of us, we just took on a name without any understanding. But we have to understand. Now it says, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the Great Advent Movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Great Controversy 423. As a people, we should be earnest students of prophecy... We should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary, which is brought out in the visions of Daniel and John. Now, there's more that's stated in this sentence than you probably saw. As a people, we should be earnest students of what? We should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary. What do you think that we're getting from that? Say again. Prophecy is in the sanctuary. Or in other words, let me put it a different way, to understand even prophecy, you need to understand the sanctuary. To rightly understand the key points of Bible prophecy, you and I need to understand the sanctuary. I want you to see how important it is to understand the sanctuary. It says, this subject sheds great light on our present position and work and gives us unmistakable proof that God has led us in our past experience. Now, is the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary? Do we see the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary message? Where do we see him? Somebody says the lampstand. Okay, I can agree with that. I definitely see him in the lampstand. Well, the, 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 the oil is in the lampstand, right? Altar of incense. Okay, good. 
All right, let's do this. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus, the 30th chapter, I want you to notice verses 22 to 31. Now, what I'll do is I'll read verse 22, you read 23, I'll read 24, you read 25, and we'll take it all the way to 31. Are you there? Are you ready? Notice what the Bible says. Exodus 30, verse 22. It says, Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And of Cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive, of oil of olive and hin. Thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, and the ark of the testimony. And the altar of burnt offering with all its vessels and the labor and his foot. Thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. So here it is that you'll find that in the sanctuary, you see that everything in the sanctuary, you find oil. And oil rep is representative of the Holy Spirit. It was called an anointing oil. So you find that the oil, the Spirit of God, was involved in every phase of the work of the sanctuary. Outer court, holy place, most holy place, and the very ministers that would minister in the sanctuary. Everything anointed with oil. And it says that when they were anointed with it, that they shall be holy. So therefore, we find that the Spirit of God is involved in every dynamic of the work of the sanctuary, because most of us just simply say, well, he's in the uh, holy place. Like if somebody would say, where's the Holy Spirit in the most holy? Many of us wouldn't know where to go. Where's the, where's the Holy Spirit in the outer court? Many of us probably wouldn't know where to go. So you don't want to just lock the Holy Spirit just in the holy place with the candlestick and the altar of incense. He's everywhere. Every part of the sanctuary was anointed with that holy oil. The Spirit of God is involved in every aspect of the work as it relates to the sanctuary. Now the reason why this is so important is notice what the Bible says in Psalms 11. In Psalms the 11th chapter. In Psalms the 11th chapter... I want you to see what the Bible says now. And we're going to look at verse 4. In Psalms, the 11th chapter and verse 4, notice what the Bible says. It says, the Lord is in where? His holy temple. The Lord's throne is where? So where's the temple? All right. So watch this. Now, we're learning from the Bible. You see, I said it earlier in the spirit of prophecy. Now, again, I'm showing it to you straight from the Bible. The Lord is in his holy temple, and it says the Lord is also where? In heaven. Now, look at this. His throne is in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. So God specifically is in the sanctuary in heaven. Amen? 
Now, go to John chapter 7. John the 7th chapter. In John the 7th chapter, we find something very powerful. John 7, and we're going to look at verse 38. John 7 and verse 38. In John 7 and verse 38, here's what the Bible says. If you're there, say amen. I still hear the leaves turning. Good. John 7, 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now remember, where is God? Is he down here or above? He's above. So when God begins to pour out water, what do we call that? We call it rain. Now, look at what it says in verse 39. It says, but this spake he of the Spirit. So stop right there. So we find that the Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. So God is in the sanctuary in heaven and he's pouring water from where he is. So the Bible substantiates the fact that the rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it comes from the sanctuary. When you and I begin to understand the sanctuary, we are in a place where we can receive the rain. Now look at what it says in verse 39, finishing off the verse. It says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Now look at this. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. I used to be Pentecostal. And when I was part of the Pentecostal church, I noticed that it was a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And that was the focus. I mean, you know, everything was about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things I remember I was taught as a Pentecostal, you know, former Pentecostal, one of the things I remember being taught is they used to always say that the Holy Ghost never came down until the day of Pentecost. And this was one of the proof texts. The Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I wonder how you all would deal with that. I wonder how the Bible workers in this room would deal with that. How can we, you know, is it true? Is it true that the Spirit of God was not in men during those times? Well, then, how, how can you help me see? The Scripture says the Holy Ghost was not yet given. That's what the Bible says. Say again, brother. Okay, while my brother's looking, is there anywhere in the Bible that helps us see that the Holy Spirit was not yet, did not yet come down? John 3.34. All right, let's look at John 3.34. John 3 and verse 34. These are the kind of texts you're going to run out there and run into when you're, you know, ministering to others. So it's good if you can consider these verses now so that by God's grace we can understand it better when we run into different challenges. John 3.34, the Bible says, For he whom God hath sent speaking, speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Is that talking about Jesus? 
All right, would you say that that's a good verse to help us see that, to understand John 7.39? Psalms 51.11, okay. See, I'm, I'm going to be quiet. I, I want you to teach me. I want you to help me out. Psalm 51.11. Let's go to Psalm 51 and let's look at verse 11. Because I, I remember I was vehemently taught that no one was filled with the Spirit of God before Pentecost. Psalm 51.11, cast me not away from thy presence, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What do you think about that verse? What do you think about that verse? Take not to, it, it, it clearly shows he had it, right? All right, that's good. Yes, Brother Chris? Matthew 22:43. Matthew 22 and verse 43. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? So it says that David was in spirit. Well, somebody would probably, you know, they might argue that a little bit. They might argue that one a little bit. Let's do, let's do this. Can we go to 1 Peter 1? Were you going there, Brother Juan? Okay, I'll tell you what. Let's take yours. Numbers 11. All right, 11, 17. Let's go to Numbers 11, 17, and we'll come back to Peter. Numbers 11, 17. Numbers 11 and verse 17. Numbers 11:17 What does the Bible say? Numbers 11:17 it says, "And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone." Is that clear? Does the Bible show that someone had the spirit of God even in those times? Yes. Now, only because I saw a lot of hands go up but for time's sake, all right? So I know I'm sure, I'm sure we got the wheels turning now. It looks like you're thinking now. So everybody's raising their hands. That's good. Let me give you one. I, 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 I just really want, I, I wanted to see if somebody would bring this out, but this is a real strong one. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. This is a good one. When you start studying your Bible, you'll start seeing Scripture truly is the key that unlocks Scripture. In First Peter chapter 1, notice what the Bible says here. It says in First Peter 1, Now, Verse 9, it says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the who? Now, now, wait a minute. When it says prophets here, was there a New Testament written yet? So this is talking about prophets of the Old Testament. Is that right? So this is definitely even before Jesus came on the scene, right? All right, look at what it says. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So did the prophets understand grace? That's good. You might want to hold on to that one. Because everybody says all the Old Testament prophets were all about law. No, they understood grace. And they talked about it. They teached it. They preached it. They lived it. But now look at verse 11. Talking about the prophets. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was what? The Spirit of Christ, which was what? Who's the them that the Spirit of Christ was in? The Old Testament prophets. 
So don't tell me that the Spirit of God was not in people before Jesus came on the scene. The Bible clearly says that the Spirit of Christ was in those prophets. And then we have all the other wonderful witnesses that many of you brought up. So now then, we've got to go back to John 7. Now let's go back to John 7. John, the 7th chapter. We're back there. So now, you know, we can, we can explain things a little better. This is good. So in John 7 now, look at verse 39 again. It says in John 7, 39, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this must... Now, someone gave a verse before that is very appropriate for me to address at this time. Who was it? I believe it was John 3. In verse 34, we're talked about without measure. The Spirit without measure was given unto him. Now, for God to even say that means that the Spirit of God can be given in measures. Okay? Think about it this way. Go to John 21. Let's, let's look at this. Let, let, me, let me show it to you from the Bible first, and then I'll explain it. It'll be better. John 21. Let's see, where is it? Uh, also many other things. Then Jesus breathed on them. 20? John 21, 20? John 20, 21? Well, you can see why I got that one confused. Okay, here we go. Look at John, 21, John 20, 21, and then 22. The Bible says... Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he what? He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So did the disciples receive the Holy Ghost? Yes. But when the day of Pentecost came, did the disciples receive the Holy Ghost? So how, what, what's going on? Was Jesus just being repetitious? They received more. You receive in measure. Are you following? That's why when John 3, it says with Christ, he had the spirit without measure. You and I, we are growing in that spirit. Are you following? So now the Bible says in John 7:39, the Holy Ghost was not yet given. It did not mean that they did not have the Spirit of God. Did the Spirit of God come upon men and in men before Christ? Yes. Is it possible to receive a measure of the Spirit of God in one place and then receive a higher measure in another? Good. So therefore, now what we have to do then is just simply look at this. When was Jesus glorified? When was Jesus? Be, keep in mind, keep in mind, hold it, hold it, hold it. Wherever Jesus was glorified, what would come? What would come? All right, so it's simple, folks. As you're measuring in your mind right now and saying, well, when was Jesus glorified? All you have to remember is, 
wherever the Bible shows that Jesus was glorified, there has to be a corresponding experience of the outpouring of the rain. Huh? Is that right? The Holy Ghost was not yet given only because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there had to be a time where Christ was glorified and then there would be a signal of Christ's glorification by rain falling down. When was Jesus glorified? Huh? Hebrews chapter 5. You know, it's so sad. Because what, if we had unadulterated... That's why I had such a good time in Australia. You want to know why? Because when we were in Australia, I, I had those students... We had 45 students in Australia. And we had those folks for hours. And while I understand that you have to balance mental education with physical work, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we work mind and body out there. And we, I mean, because some of these things, you've got to go point by point by point. So that way, once you get it, you got it. Meetings like this, all that we can do is stimulate and recruit and find out who are the workers that says, I want more of some of that meat that I got. I've learned that GYC and, and Army and all these different things, they're great organizations. But what I've learned is I had to put them in a category. And what I've learned is this. I had to ask myself, Father, can the work really be finished through these type of meetings? And I started to realize that I don't believe the answer is yes. I don't. That doesn't mean the meetings are bad. Here's what I believe the meetings do. What I believe GYC, Army, and so many other types of meetings and conferences like this, you know what I believe they are? recruitment. We put enough out to the people that the ones who are really hungry are going to say, I want to be a worker for the Lord and I want to really understand that thing. I really want to get this thing. And then what's going to happen is they're going to start branching off to the different schools and they're going to start going to the different places. They're going to do whatever they can to get the true education they need so they can be settled into these truths. So if you find that I'm not privileged to go deep by point by point by point, but oh, brother, I promise you, it's not because I don't want to. I want to. But time prohibits. You understand? But the hungry ones shall know. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. When was Christ glorified? Because that's the signal. Now, this is sweet. Hebrews 5.1. And stuff gets you excited. Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Talking about the relatability of the high priest with the people. Verse 3, and by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Verse 4, and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Now watch this. Thus far, God in verses 1 to 3 is talking about the office of the high priest. As he talks about the office of the high priest, he says in verse 4, and no man taketh this honor. Do you know that word honor also means glory? It says, he taketh no honor unto himself but he that is called of God, as was 
Aaron. So who gets the honor? The one who is called of God. Now, it says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The one who was called of God was the one who was honored or glorified. In this case, it was Aaron, as it related to the priestly ministry. He was honored or glorified in his office of high priest. Are you following? Are you sure you're following? Verse 5. So also Christ. It was a comparative Paul is doing. Paul just talked about the high priest's office. He just talked about how Aaron, whom God called, was glorified as he officiated as a high priest. And now it says, so also Christ. In like manner, Jesus. Notice the rest of the verse. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. When was Jesus made an high priest? Oh, don't mumble, saints. Come on. When was Jesus made an high priest? To be a high priest, there has to be a sanctuary. Would you agree? All right. When did Jesus begin his work as high priest? When he ascended up to the most holy place? All right. We got Seventh-day Adventists in here. When he ascended into the holy place, he began his high priestly Ministry. Watch this. Verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus ascended up into the clouds, and when Jesus went into that holy place, and he began his priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, the signal, the signal that he began his priesthood work, because remember, when Aaron was made priest, he was what? Glorified. So when Jesus ascended and he began his work as high priest in the holy place, he was glorified, and the signal of his glorification is that the rain came down. It was the time for the early rain. When he did that, remember, the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And once Jesus became glorified as high priest, the signal of that is those who understood his priestly ministry received that reign. Somebody may say, Brother Lemon, you're being very creative with the word of God. No, I just speak what inspiration says. I see your hand, brother. Give me just one moment. Acts of the Apostles, page 38. Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal. Was the what? 
Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that his followers were to receive the promised blessing. For this they were to wait before they entered upon their work. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, he was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents and Christ was indeed glorified. Even with the glory which he had with the Father from all eternity, the Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to his promise, he had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his followers as a token that he had as priest and king received all authority in heaven and on earth and was the anointed one over his people. Did you still have a point, brother? The microphone is not on, brother. Thank you very That's much. Why there was the delay. Appreciate it. So therefore, we see that the signal, the key, the time for the rain was based on... Now, brothers and sisters, don't miss this because we do need to understand the latter rain, don't we? Okay. Now, is there a correlation between how the early rain falls and the latter rain falls? Big time. Don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. There's a lot of people today who believe that we've entered into the time of the latter rain because of movements on earth. You probably didn't catch me on that. There's a lot of people right now who believe that we have entered into the time of the latter rain as a result of movements that take place on earth. But do you know when you understand the sanctuary, you would understand that rain never falls because of movements on earth. Rain always falls because of movements in the heavenly sanctuary. Do you understand that? That, believe it or not, that's key. The way that we know that the time, in other words, the rain must definitely fall. There's a cooperation that needs to happen on earth, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is, is that we don't enter into the time until there's first a movement in heaven. When Christ came into that holy place, and as he was inaugurated, high priest, that rain fell down upon those who were connected to Christ and his heavenly ministry by faith. That's why there were some Jews observing and some Jews who were preaching. The observers did not know what time it was. The ones who were preaching under early rain power understood clearly the work of Christ in the sanctuary. Now, that would mean then that those who understood Christ's work in the holy place were the ones who received the rain from the holy place. So if you want the latter rain, 
You've got to receive rain from where God is. And Christ is not in the holy place anymore. Jesus is now in the most holy place. And if you and I are not having a most holy place understanding doctrine, and then a most holy place experience power, there will be no latter rain. This becomes very, very simple, brothers and sisters. And so you will find that we learn much through it. The time of that early rain came when the Spirit of God came down. Now, I want to show you something here that I think is going to be very powerful. Bear with me just one quick moment. Yes, sir. Is that screen? Okay, we need the screen back up, by the way, for those, uh, you know, who are helping us out here. We're going to need that screen back up. And so we find, when was Jesus glorified? When was Jesus glorified? When he went into that holy place and he was inaugurated what? High priest. Beautiful. And what was the signal of his inauguration as high priest? Spirit of God came down through the rain. And it was the early rain. Now, the Spirit of God came down upon the early church in the closing or beginning of the church? In the beginning. So the early, because remember, what's the focus of the early rain? It's to germinate and develop. So it made perfect sense that God, when he poured out his Holy Spirit in the early rain down to his disciples, those who were establishing the early church, the apostolic church, the Christian church. God poured down the rain upon them. But now we're at the close. We're at the close of probation. We are now at the final scenes upon which God's church is getting ready to go through. And that's why God says it is not enough that my church stays stuck on an early rain experience but my church needs the latter rain. And so now we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about this a little bit. Now, I want you to see something here. What are some things that hinders rain from falling anyhow? Now, I'll let you know that I don't see it. Let's see. Oh, is there? Wonderful. All right, praise the Lord. Go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, there's one thing that will always keep rain from falling. This is according to the Bible. In the natural world, it's called a day without clouds. But I want you to see something in the spiritual world. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 35. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 35. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 35, I want you to see what the Bible says here. 1 Kings 8, 35, if you're there, say amen. It says... When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, why? Because they have sinned against thee. If they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them. So according to the text, why would rain not fall? Sin. Very good. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6 now, let's notice what the Bible says here. 2 Chronicles 6, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. It says, When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, 
Yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, when thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon thy land, which thou hast given unto thy people for an inheritance. So again, the Bible shows, what's the reason the rain doesn't fall? Sin. But then the Bible says that if they confess their sins and cooperate with God and so on, it, what's the promise? The rain will fall. So for you and I who are looking to receive the latter rain, we must first make sure we're receiving the early rain, and the contingency upon all rain is that we must make sure that we are not living in sin. You following so far? Simple enough? All right, very good. Now, go to John chapter 3. When we talk about the developmental process of the Spirit of God in our lives, first of all, the Bible says this in John 3. John, the third chapter. And you remember this dialogue that Jesus had with Nicodemus? And I want you to see what it says in verses 5 to 8. John 3, verses 5 to 8. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So the process of how God is working in our hearts is when the Spirit of God comes to us, He's going to be with us to show us our need for Jesus. As our eyes are opened and we realize that I am destined for death, I am completely unworthy, and I have no hope. That same Spirit that convinces us of sin now convinces us of Christ our righteousness. That same Spirit of God that shows us our sinfulness shows us Christ's righteousness and how Jesus offers it to you and I. When we accept this gift of God's grace, we are born again. But I want you to see something that I thought was very, very nice. John 16, 13. I thought this was great. John 16 and verse 13. Talking about the developmental process of the early power of God's Spirit working in our lives. John 16 and verse 13. In John 16, 13, remember, the Spirit of God, as He comes to us, the Bible says in verse 13, Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. When the Spirit of God is going to come to us, He's not just simply going to uh, reveal Christ to us and get us to accept Him, but now He's going to guide us into all truth. So when you think of a guide, you're thinking of some... When you think of a guide, the last thing you think of is staying still. If I go to another country and, I'm th and I, I have to meet somebody who's my guide, the last thing I'm going to do is expect to say, hello, I'm your guide. I'm not expecting that, right? When that person says, hello, I'm your guide, I'm expecting that person to show me around, take me places, 
and I'm going to follow him. So when the Spirit of God comes, he comes introducing Christ. He taps on my shoulder as you please. And he says, you need Jesus. And he shows me my sins. He shows me Christ, my righteousness. As I accept Christ, he says, very good. Now I'm going to guide you into all truth. So now the role, the next role of the Spirit of God, and remember, he comes as a teacher. So he's going to help me understand the very book he inspired to be written. Because the rain comes as doctrine. So he's going to start guiding me through the word and everything that the Bible calls truth. He's going to teach me. John 14, 6, Jesus is truth. So he's going to teach me everything about the life of Christ. Psalm 119, 142, thy law is truth. He's going to teach me everything about the law of God. He's going to teach me everything that the Bible calls truth. That's his mission. Because those who will make it through the final crisis are those who are settled into the truth. Is that right? So therefore, he has to guide. So this is why, again, that work of the early reign, guiding me through his word. I receive Christ. He guides me through the word. He's teaching me. He's showing me. He's developing me. But now go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. I want you to see another term. You know that the Bible calls the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, different names. I want to show you another name that, that the Holy Spirit has. Hebrews 10, 29. It says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. So these are individuals who would suffer, unfortunately, uh, the separation from God as a result of trodding underfoot the Word of God or the Son of God. It says, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the what? So the Holy Spirit is also called the spirit of what? The spirit of grace. Now let me show you something about grace. A lot of people take grace and they make it sound so cheap. When I go to the Lay Institute uh, for Evangelism, we do a class called Law and Grace. And we really, we, we, we go meticulously through what is grace. Now, I'm going to show you one thing grace is. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, is called the Spirit of Grace because I'm about to show you something about grace. Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, let me show you something about grace. Now, I thought that this was very interesting as, I, as it relates to grace. Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, notice what the Bible says in verse 11 and 12. Now, in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, watch this one. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. What's the first thing in verse 12 we find out about grace? Teaching. So, so grace is a teacher. What's the Holy Spirit? A teacher. John 14, 26. Now, it says teaching us. Now, I wonder, do you know this is the purpose of grace? is not just God's mercy. Genesis 19.19 19 definitely shows that grace and mercy are synonymous. No question. God says you are 100% guilty. But because I love you, if you will accept me, I'll make your slate clean. And God presents his grace. So grace is definitely mercy, but it's deeper than that. Because after God is merciful to us, he now begins to teach us. What is he teaching us? Look at what it says in verse 12. Teaching us to do what? 
denying ungodliness. What else? And worldly lust. Now, I thought this was interesting. And we should live how? Soberly and what else? Righteously. Now, wait a minute. Grace teaches us to do what? To live how? To live righteously. All right, students. Question. What is righteousness? His commandments. You see, while people are trying to say law and grace are enemies, the Bible says, no, actually, one of the reasons I even send grace is to teach you to keep my law. Isn't that amazing? And you know what's so deep? In Genesis 19.19, the Bible says grace is manifested as mercy. So grace and mercy are synonymous. In Psalm 119.142, it says thy law is truth. So God's law and truth are also synonymous. So watch this. Grace and mercy, synonymous. Law and truth, synonymous. Go to Psalm 61. Grace and mercy, synonymous. Law and truth, synonymous. Go to Psalms 61. In Psalm 61, notice what the Bible says as we look at verse 7. The Bible says in Psalm 61, 7, He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. Grace, mercy, synonymous. Law, truth, synonymous. And the Bible says, prepare mercy and truth. Prepare law and grace. And what happens when law and grace come together? It preserves God's people. And you know what's so sweet? When I take my tour into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, there's a box inside of there that has a mercy seat, grace, and law, truth, inside of it. Law and grace is even in the sanctuary. Law and grace is in the most holy place. And God has seen through these wonderful two that have come together and kissed each other that this is his method of how he's going to preserve us to even make it through the final scenes of earth's history. And so you find that, number one, we see that the Spirit of God, as he comes to us, he comes to us as a guide. He's guiding us into truth. He reveals God's grace, which is to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and also to live soberly, righteously and, and, and holy in this sinful world. But now I want you to see something very significant about grace. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 18, remember, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 now, we find that God tells us something very wonderful. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. It's a progressive work. And who's doing this? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The purpose of that early reign is to develop us. It is to build us up that ultimately we will go 
from glory to glory. When he first comes, he reveals Christ to us. He helps us to understand who Jesus is, what he did, and help me to see what I did to him. That's why Zechariah 12.10 says, we shall behold the one whom we have pierced, and we will mourn. That godly sorrow will develop. Because we'll be able to say it wasn't somebody else's sins, it was my sins that killed Jesus. You know, a lot of times we get mad when we hear about somebody who killed a little innocent baby. We watch the news and we hear about, oh, someone killed a little baby. And we say, oh, that's terrible. We go ahead and hear about a man walking into a store and he guns down a young lady who was innocent. We say, oh, that's terrible. And sometimes when the judge gets ready to cast judgment, we look upon these individuals and say, give them the book, put put them in for life. And some of us might even vote the death penalty. But then the father says, well, you're mad because someone killed an innocent baby. You're mad because someone killed an innocent clerk. But God says, you killed my innocent son. Now God says, it's deeper than that because the man who killed the baby, he did it once. The man who killed that innocent clerk, he did it only once. God says there's something called serial killers. And they just go from place to place, just killing, killing. They go on a killing spree. And God says, you want to give them the death penalty because they killed an innocent person once. But every time you choose to sin, you crucify my son afresh. You're mad at a murderer when you're a spiritual serial killer. God says, be careful how you judge, for you shall be met by the judgment that you use. And here it is that when the Spirit of God comes, he convinces us of sin. He helps us see, this is what I did to the Son of God, the innocent Son of God. And it develops a godly sorrow from heaven, because we don't have it naturally in us. I promise you that. And then after he develops us in that picture, he now walks us into truth because he doesn't just want to reveal Christ to us. He wants to keep us in Christ. And we start to develop. We start to grow. Now, remember, you remember that quote we saw earlier in the east, the former rain falls at the sowing time. It is necessary in order that the seed may germinate. So the purpose of the seed is that it may what? Germinate. Now, I'm going to show you a connection. In the agricultural world, we're going to talk about development because this is, a, this is a, a major dynamic of the early rain. He develops us, right? In the agricultural world, what's the goal when you plant food? Beautiful. Harvest. If there's no harvest, our whole gardening experience is for nothing. Is that right? Now, we can understand that in the natural world. God says, all right, I want you to understand that in the spiritual world. God says, I have a harvest time coming. And the whole purpose of my spiritual garden is I want to get my people ready for harvest time. Now, there's some key things that you're going to need at minimum. I'm only going to address three. Number one, if you want a harvest, would you agree you have to have a seed? Okay, so can't have a harvest without a seed, right? Number two, if you, want a, if you want a harvest, would you not have to have soil? If you have a seed and you just hold it in your hand like this, do you think it's going to grow? What if you hold it like this? Will it grow? No, it needs to be in soil, right? And would you agree also that in addition to a seed and soil, you're also going to need rain? 
We're going to need seed, soil, and rain. At bare minimum, if we want a harvest, we have to have seed, soil, and rain. Would you agree? Let's look at the spiritual seed that God wants to give us. Because remember, the whole focus is to get us ready for harvest time, right? So we've got to make sure that, number one, we got the right seed. So I want you to do, do me a favor. Turn your Bible to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We've got to make sure we got the right seed. When we look at the seed, the Bible says in Matthew 13, Matthew the 13th chapter, And let's notice what the Bible says. Now, in Matthew 13, Jesus, he taught wonderfully from agriculture. And you'll find that in Matthew 13, 23, he says, but he that received what? Seed. So he's talking about seeds. He that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So the Bible is very clear that Christ, he presents to us a seed, and the seed has to be received. But let's take a look at the seed real quick. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and we're going to look at chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, notice what the Bible says. What we're going to do is we're going to read verses 23 to 25. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. If you're there, please say amen. The Bible says, being born again... Did I say 22 or 23? 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the what? By the word of God. So what's the seed? The word of God. Good. It says, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endures for how long? Now it says, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So the first thing we learn about the seed is that the seed is the word of God as expressed through the gospel. And the question is, what kind of seed do you have? You know, I did some gardening one time on our property and I remember putting seeds into the ground and nothing came out. And this is how I started understanding this thing about heirloom seeds and all these other hybrid seeds and all these unfortunate things that's happening in the agricultural world because of food factories, Monsanto and all these guys. And I started to learn those things. And I said, wow, this is amazing. But do you know it's possible to put a seed into the ground and nothing comes out? Do you know it's possible that people can embrace the gospel and get no experience? You see, if you want harvest time, one of the first things you want to do is make sure you got the right seed. That's key, brothers and sisters, because there's some individuals right now who think that they're getting the gospel on a regular basis and they don't understand that they're getting something perverted. Let me show you what I mean. Galatians chapter one. In Galatians chapter one. Notice how the Bible expresses it. I'm sorry. Galatians chapter six. No, Galatians one, six through nine. Yes. Galatians one, six through nine. You see, not all gospels are equal. A lot of times people just feel like, well, if Jesus' name is being expressed, if the Bible's being opened, then it must be the gospel. No, brothers and sisters. It's so much deeper than that. 
The Bible says in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, it says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto what? Another gospel, which is not another, but there'll be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There are perverted gospels. Not every gospel is equal. There are some gospels that the Bible calls perverted. And God takes it so seriously that he says in verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. There are gospels, brothers and sisters, that are so incredibly perverted because what it does is it takes away the very essence of the gospel. As an example, Romans 1.16, you know that text. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Salvation from what? Sin, Matthew 1.21. They shall call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. So therefore, there are some gospels that people are preaching that says we're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. That's a perverted gospel. That's perversion. You know, the Bible says there are some gospels that will tell you that when Jesus came, he came with the nature of Adam before the fall. That's a perverted gospel. Because once Jesus has the nature of Adam before the fall, there will be lost a relatability between myself and Christ because I guarantee you I don't have such a nature. And therefore I question how he really could have been touched with the feeling of my infirmities. I question Hebrews 2 where it says it behooved him. You know, when I first looked up that word in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says it behooved Christ to be made like us, I remember I read that and I thought that the word behooved means it touched him. Like he was, he was emotionally moved. Because that's what I thought, behooved. I was just like, oh, so he was moved with love to be made like his people. That's what I thought it meant. Then one day I looked it up. You know what the word behooved means? You know what the word behooved means? Behooved means it was an absolute imperative. It was a must. It was absolutely necessary. So I said, that's interesting. The Bible says it was an absolute must. It was absolutely necessary. It was an absolute imperative that he was made like me. And I began going down the road of questions. Was man born a sinner? You know, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists believe men are born sinners. We've let Rome more into our minds than we will ever know. Original sin and all these things. Man is not born a sinner. Sinners are people who commit sin. You're not born a sinner. The Bible doesn't teach that. Study Psalms 51 again, brothers and sisters. David did not say we are born and shaping sinners. It's not what he meant. But people teach that, and that's a perverted gospel. There's only one gospel seed, brothers and sisters, that can bring a harvest. And I'll I'll reveal it to you right now, Revelation 14. Revelation, the 14th chapter, 
Notice what the Bible says. Revelation, the 14th chapter. You know the story, verses 6 through 12. The Bible tells us very clearly the three angels' messages, and it's called the everlasting gospel. But notice what happens after the everlasting gospel is heralded throughout the world. Verse 14. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. Why? For the harvest of the earth is ripe or ready. It is the three angels' messages, this everlasting gospel, that is the only gospel seed that can prepare the world for the harvest. And it broke my heart so much one time when I went to a church and a minister said to me, we can't preach the three angels' messages every Sabbath. And I said to myself, the three angels' message is the everlasting gospel. If you can't preach the everlasting gospel every Sabbath, then what in the world are you preaching? You see, God is not interested in us repeating words every Sabbath. It's not that every Sabbath we're going to go ahead and say, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. That's not what God is saying. Every sermon... Every Sabbath school lesson, every midday Bible study, every midweek of prayer, every morning and evening devotion, brothers and sisters, should bring us into the experience of the three angels' messages. Everything. It's always the everlasting gospel. I wish so much we can talk more about that. So number one, the right seed. Number two, the soil. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says as we look at verse 19. Matthew 13 and verse 19. I'm wondering where my bag is. Oh, he did. Caleb, are you here? All right, I need the bag. Matthew 13 and verse 19. In Matthew 13 and verse 19, let's notice what the Bible says. Matthew 13 and verse 19. It says, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in where? In where? In his heart. So what is represented by the soil? Thank you very much. What is represented by the soil? His heart. So the heart represents the soil. The seed represents the gospel. Which gospel? Everlasting gospel. The soil represents the heart. So what has to happen is that the seed of the everlasting gospel must get into the soil of yours and my heart. That's what God is trying to accomplish. Not just simply the intellect of our minds, but the soil of our hearts, brothers and sisters. Where we go from information to inspiration. Now, there's a way that that's done. Can I introduce to you the method of one of God's best soul winners? What do you think his name is? 
One of, God, one of God's best soul winners. What do you think his name is? John the Baptist. Very good. Was John the Baptist a soul winner? You see, can I explain to you very quickly what a soul winner is? You know, a lot of times we think winning souls is only something you do outside of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Let me show you what the Bible says. J- James 5. You believe the Bible, right? James 5. James 5. Let me show you God's mindset of a soul winner. James 5. Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 5, and we're going to go ahead and look at verse 20. In James 5 and verse 20, the Bible says, Let him know that he, which what? Converteth the sinner from the error of his way, shall do what? Shall save a soul. Another way of saying that is, win a soul. Shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Soul winning, brothers and sisters, is when you meet people who are living in sin and you give them a message of salvation where they turn away from their sins and give their hearts to Jesus. And we have sinners in the church and we have sinners outside of the church. Soul winning is a dual effort. John the Baptist had a message which was repent ye Pharisees and Sadducees, the people in the church, Matthew chapter 3. Repent ye publicans and sinners, those outside of the faith, Matthew 21. You and I are to do a dual work. We are to do soul winning in the church and out of the church because there's sinners in both places. Now, can I show you a method that John used? In Desire of Ages, page 103, It says he saw his people deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. John had a right perspective of his own people. He said he longed to rouse them to a holier life. The message that God had given him to bear was designed to startle them from their lethargy and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. John did not have a flattering message. John the Baptist's message was not a message to get everybody excited and feel so good about their sins. John was not interested in trying to imitate all of the false ministers that were around him in all the other nations. John knew I have to give these people a message that will arouse them, to startle them to make those who think that they are all right to really realize that they are, in fact, all wrong. That was John's work. It says, before... Now, brothers and sisters, listen to this. Before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment... Now, I live in Georgia. Red clay... Georgia reminds me of the human heart. Hard. I guarantee you, if you take a seed and just drop it on Georgia red clay, you can come back 20 years later, and that seed will be right there looking at you. Before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment, The soil of the heart must be broken up. You see, we have too many ministers that are trying to imitate 
the ministers that in, are in churches that constitute Babylon. Babylon has no message, brothers and sisters, that can prepare the world for the harvest. That's why the only solution God has for those in Babylon, come out! You are not to try to revive or reform Babylon. It is so corrupted that it is becoming and soon to become the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Come out, God says. Babylon cannot do it. And it breaks my heart when I see ministers in the remnant church trying to imitate by method and preaching styles and all these things. And they think, oh, we don't need to teach the three angels. Just tell them about the love of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I'm giving a message at a church and I'm talking about repentance and turning away from our sins and giving the heart to Christ. And as we're going through all this study, one day somebody comes and they say, Brother Lennon, why you always got to preach about repentance and talking about sin and all these things? Why can't you tell us about the love of Jesus? I said, I just did. I just did. They said, no, 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 you didn't tell us about the love of Jesus. You told us about why we need to turn from our sins and repent, and you keep making us feel bad. I said, that's interesting. In John chapter 7, Jesus says that I won't even go because every time I go, I keep telling the people that what they're doing is bad. I said, sister, anytime you give a message of true repentance, it's an expression of God's love. You want to know why? In Revelation chapter 3, the Bible says... Right there, in verse 19, Jesus, as many as I love. Jesus did not say as many as I hate. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The call to repentance is a message of love. If I see that a fire is burning behind you and I know it's going to consume you and everything that you hold dear, love should motivate me to say, well, if I tell him there's a fire, he's going to get out of his comfort zone because he's really relaxed on the couch right now and, you know, I feel bad and, you know, he looks really comfortable. I don't know if I want to disturb his comfort right now. But I understand, listen, if I don't say something, he's going to experience something far more uncomfortable than having to get up out of that couch. So without refrain, I'm going to let that brother know, brother, get up, get out, now! Is that right? I'm going to do that. Same thing with God. God says, listen, to leave my people in sin. You see, we don't understand. Sin is painful. Sin is punishing. Now, I I used to have Lyme disease, brothers and sisters, and when I had it, I, I can remember that I had to literally walk like this. My wife will tell you, I literally was walking like this because that's how much pain I was suffering from head to toe. To just do that with my hands was excruciating. I didn't even realize how much I took for granted the fact that I could turn my head like this until I got that disease and my joints and everything became so stiff that for me to turn my head like this, it felt like people was putting daggers in my throat. If I had to turn around, I had to turn around like this. And I had to walk and so on. And I had to preach sometimes. And sometimes I would go to churches and I would literally preach. And I would preach and I would, I would begin to lean on the chair like this. And I was just saying, now brothers and sisters, and what I was doing is my body was so exhausted from pain that I couldn't stand up like this anymore. I had to lean on something or else I would fall down. 
And I remember going through that and I remember that I started to adjust my life because I didn't know what was going on. I went through this for six months, so I didn't know what exactly was going on. And I honestly thought, well, this is my life until I die. I'm going to have to live with this pain. And after a while, you begin to convince yourself on how to live with pain. We are all suffering with the pain of sin. But we're so blinded by its most effective aspect of the disease, which is Laodicea, that we're so blind we can't even see our true condition. So we've been learning how to live with sin. We've learned that when we hear gunshots in some of our neighborhoods, do you know there was a time that when a gunshot would go off, somebody would say, oh, a gunshot? we got to get out of here. And I mean, it would be urgent. But now some of us live in some neighborhoods that when a gunshot goes off, we just... Man, that's messed up. <laughs> and we just kind of go back to our business. We've become desensitized. We've become so... It's, it's just life now. I watched a man catch a... Brother, I saw a man get shot in his eye and die instantly. And I remember I went over there and I looked at him and I'm looking at his body there just laying dead. And I looked and I thought to myself, wow, that's amazing. That's how messed up my head was because I was trained from a child. I already saw gunslinging. From a child, I already saw people going up to people in movies and blowing their brains out. So it was already part of my life. This is why ministries like yours, brother, I'm telling you, man, it's a ministry of deliverance. Because when young people keep watching all this gunslinging, cussing, swearing, and, 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 and cheating and lying and stealing, and they watch that stuff, it desensitizes the mind, and we become comfortable living in sin and around it. But God says this, is, wasn't, this wasn't what it was supposed to be. So when we give a message, brothers and sisters, that heart soil needs to be broken up. You've got to sweep away every security that those carnal individuals who come to your meetings are thinking that they can live in and be all right anyhow. And it takes a method because it's not hellfire preaching. That's the other extreme. But it's giving people a sense of reality to say, brother, sister, listen. I realize you have a six-figure income, and I realize you live in a great house, and I realize that you probably feel like between your job, your business, your family, that life is great. But let me tell you something. Sin is the transgression of God's law. And there's only one payment for sin, and that is death. And your car, your money, your associations and everything else cannot save you from this fate that is coming sooner than you think. Let me show you. And you start walking them through prophecy and help them see that time is almost finished. Brother, I'm telling you, I have seen it over and over again. Every time I do an evangelistic meeting and we go over those things, I'm telling you, night number one, people are already giving their hearts to Jesus and willing to join the commandment keeping family of God. I don't have to wait until the Sabbath sermon and then do it. No, brothers and sisters, God gives you wisdom that in the first night you can make a call right there and say, how many of us are willing to give their hearts to Jesus? We did a gospel of health meeting. Health! And we literally showed the people high blood pressure and how to overcome it. And brothers and sisters, that was night number two of an evangelistic series. By night number two, we had nine people come up to give their hearts to Jesus and join the commandment-keeping family of God at the end of a high blood pressure presentation. 
the gospel of health. I'm, and I'm not the only one. There, there are scores of medical missionaries doing this because they understand that you are to combine the two. I'm, 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 I'm far from standing alone. I'm late in this work. There are many who have gone before me that understand the wonderful connection between these two. I'm telling you, for the seed to find lodgment, the soil must be broken up. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't want to weary you. I don't want to weary you. And I know there's other events going on. We're going to pray. We're going to pause right here. Tomorrow, in our last sessions, we're going to finish up some points on the early rain. And then we're going to do all of the different points on the latter rain. And then we will close. All right? What we're going to do is we're going to pray out. We're going to close. I'm going to take some questions and we're going to have a moment of prayer. So let us all bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have helped us to understand your words of truth. Lord, I pray, please do something special at these meetings for all of us, Lord. We are asleep We are in a spiritual lethargy. And Lord, we need you to stimulate our minds and wake us up. Please, Lord, do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. May we behold Jesus by beholding, become changed into that same lovely image. We thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.